This is Health First Talks, where we share information to help the healthcare community meet the daily challenges of medical emergency readiness, patient safety, and compliance. Hi, I'm Dr. Don Cohen, Chief Clinical Officer of Health First, and our meeting is on the ongoing concerns of superbugs in the dental practice. I'm Chief Clinical Officer at Health First, and I'd like to begin the introductions of our panel. First, Fiona. Hi, I'm Dr. Fiona Collins. I'm a general dentist. I've uh, lived and worked in five countries, actually, and I'm an infection control expert. And hi there, I'm Scott Cohen, a family physician and clinical informaticist uh, by training, and uh, happy to talk to you all today. I'm Dr. Heather Farifi. I am a clinical pharmacist with a concentration in community pharmacy. And I'm Dr. Stanley Malamud, a dentist anesthesiologist. Our learning objectives for today are obviously to identify the key risks and concerns with superbugs, and we'll have great understanding of that. Again, to understand the frequency in which antibiotic prescriptions are written and how often they're overprescribed. There are certain recommendations that we'll go over from the ADA, AHA, and AAOS. And then there is a, a slide in this which will be made available to everybody, which will identify available resources. What I'd like to do is open this up to the panel with, hey, how about some case studies of things that have gone wrong? Well, today's topic is about superbugs and antibiotic resistance. We don't want to downplay all the good that antibiotics have done. Since Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin in 1928, they have become the cornerstone of modern medicine. Along with public sanitation and immunization, antibiotic control of infectious diseases has contributed greatly, including doubling the lifespan in developed countries over the past century. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Fiona to start with one of our case studies. Thank you, Heather. So I think we're familiar uh, with the fact that obviously antibiotics uh, can cause adverse drug reactions. And one of the uh, particularly worrying ones is actually gastrointestinal infections, in particular C. difficile. Um, one of the cases I read about that was really tragic and that sticks in my mind to this day was actually a report in 2013. Uh, it was reported in the Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery, and it was an 18-year-old female, actually in your area, Scott, or near your area, in Rochester, New York. She received prophylactic antibiotics prior to oral surgery. She then developed severe fallen or full-blown C. difficile infection. Uh, it ended up with her staying in the hospital for a considerable length of time, and she had a subtotal colectomy and ileostomy. It was described in the article as life-changing. Uh, it would be life-changing at any age, but an absolute tragedy in an 18-year-old. Um, there's also a more recent report that talked uh, about a study, a retrospective study at Johns Hopkins. This was reported in 2017. So they were looking about all of the different adverse drug reactions or adverse events that were associated with antibiotics. And they looked at 1,500 patients it turned out that 20% had at least one adverse event. Uh, the common ones were uh, allergies, uh, but there were others as well. There were dermatological problems, musculoskeletal, uh, hematological, and others. I know that uh, Scott's going to talk now about some cases in his own patient population. 
and that Stan's going to talk about anaphylaxis. So with that, I'd like to hand it over to Scott. Thank you, Fiona. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a practicing family doctor. I do both, you know, inpatient and ambulatory medicine. Um, I do have colleague dentist, dental practitioners um, as well. So we share cases back and forth. And the, the two cases that I'm going to talk about today, you know, fairly briefly, are the are two of those that I've actually seen in my practices, uh, both ambulatory and inpatient. The first one is a 40-year-old. It's more of a medical case, but really just demonstrates the, the problems with recurrent antibiotics. And it was a 40-year-old who, who came in, you know, a couple times a year with recurrent bronchitis. And, you know, we all know bronchitis is viral, shouldn't be treated with antibiotics, at least 85% of it, you know. And anyway, on one of the times that this person was treated with a fairly benign antibiotic, if I recall, I think it was doxycycline, but I'm not 100% sure. It might have been amoxicillin or augmentin. Uh, but anyway, they developed C. difficile colitis. And as you all know, C. difficile colitis can run the gamut from, you know, this mild diarrhea that just goes on and on and on to, as Fiona had described, someone with just a fulminant, you know, necrotic necrotizing infection that, um, you know, really can be life-threatening um, and actually can be fatal, unfortunately. Um, this person had an ongoing uh, problem with this, wound up having, you know, a treatment initially with the, the drug of choice at the time, which was metronidazole, um, then wound up with oral vancomycin. Uh, that didn't work. And I think at some point, I don't know how many treatment courses afterwards, wound up with an experimental fecal transplant you know, which at the time was experimental now is more, you know, mainstream. But the question is, why is it more mainstream? It's just we're seeing so many of these cases that are caused by, you know, really low appropriateness. I, some of them are not inappropriate uses of antibiotics, but in this case, I like to call it low appropriateness. Another one that I saw was a patient, a 60-year-old who didn't have a primary dentist and bounced around from ERs to primary care to urgent care centers with kind of chronic dental pain. And I think had some odontogenic, odontogenic abscess at some point, um, I don't remember specifically, but this was a, a problem in that the patient came in with urosepsis, you know, had a urinary tract infection. I think it was a kidney infection at the time. And unfortunately, you know, was treated in the office and really just didn't get better. And a culture grew out, you know, uh, an ESBL, extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing uh, bug that was basically resistant to everything. And the only thing that the patient could be treated with for a simple kidney infection, you know, that sort of thing was, I think it was four to six weeks she wound up with, with IV antibiotics and a PICC line. And the reason for that is if you look at her, her antibiotic sensitivity profile on this bug, you know, it was pretty clear that there had been some induced resistance because of all the antibiotics this, that this person would be on. So again, resistance, you know, C. difficile colitis, you know, uh, Fiona's talked about some things, and I'll pass it off to Stanley to talk about some of the more immediate things that we see, life-threatening, but, you know, are really problematic. So, Stan? Right. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Fiona. Yeah, I have uh, two cases, one of which I was actually involved with, of life-threatening anaphylaxis occurring following the administration or the taking of oral antibiotics. Uh, the first case is a 23-year-old lady who had uh, extraction of third molars. On her history, there was no known drug allergy. The procedure went along well. And whatever the reason, she was prescribed penicillin, I would say prophylactically postoperatively, in other words, inappropriately, if you will. They left the clinic. And three hours later, her husband and sister-in-law 
carried this woman back into the clinic, semi-conscious. She was in respiratory distress, audible wheezing, uh, mucous membranes were cyanotic, and she had large eruptions all over her arms and legs. Treatment as it, for anaphylaxis is, you know, positioning supine. They gave her oxygen. They gave her epinephrine, diphenhydramine. Having this, uh, this occurred in a hospital dental clinic. So after the medics, you know, the, the physicians from the ER came down to the clinic, they evaluated her for a couple of hours and they, she was allowed to leave uh, the, the, the uh, hospital. It's interesting because later the patient did comment that within a couple of minutes of taking her first penicillin tablet, the itching started. Again, there was no known drug history, no, a drug allergy history in this patient. Now, the other case is one I was involved with. This occurred at the USC School of Dentistry quite a while ago. And this is a 24-year-old woman who was in the emergency clinic for what she said was a severe toothache. It was a uh, for the uh, root canal therapy on a upper left, I pointed to the right side, the upper left maxillary second molar. And um, everything went well. And in this case, you know, they did prescribe antibiotics prophylactically, but perhaps maybe there was an indication for it here. Again, maybe not. But while still in the clinic, the itching started. She, she complained of a burning sensation over her entire body, a rash on her arms and chest, dizziness, shortness of breath, and tightness in her throat. She had periorbital and perioral edema, and her respirations were shallow and, uh, and labored. The initial blood pressure we got was 70 over 40. So place her in the chair, supine position. We started an IV. We slowly titrated epinephrine. Her blood pressure came back to about 120 over something and uh, oxygen. Uh, 911 had been called. They came to the clinic. They took her to the hospital. When she arrived in the hospital, her blood pressure had fallen back down to 70 over 50. So again, they gave her more epinephrine, diphenhydramine, and corticosteroids. She was actually hospitalized for 48 hours before they dismissed her. So these are two cases of maybe inappropriate antibiotic administration where, where in one case, without any prior history of allergy to the, to the medication, she did have an anaphylactic reaction. But happily, both of these patients did survive. And these things, as Fiona and Scott talked about, and I just discussed, these things do happen with these wonderful drugs called antibiotics. So, Stanley, I'm going to throw one at you. I, I had a brother-in-law who was pre-medicated for years, like 25, 30 years, with penicillin prior to his dental appointments. Right. Everything went super, super, super until that one time when anything you could think of went wrong had an anaphylactic reaction. Luckily, he was in New York City, close to um, Bellevue Hospital, and wound up in the hospital quickly, and they responded well. But a, the point of reference here is, even though a patient has been on a medication for ages and ages and ages, we have no clue as when an anaphylactic response can occur, which right. basically simply means we always need to be prepared. Well, that's what's scary about allergy, because a prior negative history, even in your case, 20, 20 or 30 exposures to the drug, the 21st or 31st exposure could be allergy. So that's why 
when we talk about, when I talk about you know, medical emergencies, I, I always say, if you have a bare bones basic emergency kit, the most important drug in that kit is your EpiPen or your auto injector, your, your epinephrine auto injector. Hopefully you'll never need it, but if you need it, you better have it right there. Yeah, I mean, if, when we think about allergic reactions, clearly anaphylaxis is the one that's life-threatening, but there are other, unfortunately, other opportunities. I personally have had antibiotics, I think, three times in my life, and I'm not a teenager anymore by far. Um, and the last time was for a dog bite. Amoxicillin, I ended up with severe hives. Um, obviously not life-threatening, but totally, as you said, totally unpredictable, extremely unpleasant, and took about two weeks uh, to resolve with me sitting with my legs in ice buckets. Doesn't sound like fun. So Heather, Heather, quick question for you. Any idea on like how many of these prescriptions are written in, in the U.S. per year on, for antibiotics? Well, the research that I did, um, I was able to find where roughly 259 million prescriptions are written for antibiotics. Um, dentists write approximately 25.4 million of those. So dental practices make up about 10% of the prescriptions that are written for antibiotics. It was interesting because some of the data um, did not reflect abandoned prescriptions, which I found was interesting. Those are those prescriptions that you send in and the patient never actually comes in to pick up, whether they can't afford it, whether there was miscommunication, whether they just didn't feel it was necessary. So not until 2019 was that data being collected. So I have 2018 information, but I'm curious to see what the difference is once we start looking at abandoned prescriptions. I, I think that's a, a great point. And, and I'll put you on the spot to some extent because Heather has a whole lot of knowledge on, on pharmacies, retail pharmacies, and so on. In your own experience, what do you tend to, to see coming down with regard to those say, abandoned antibiotic prescription. So if you get 100 RXs, what percentage just don't get picked up? I would say 5% of all prescriptions get returned to stock. And, and for all of us to think about, so that's 5% of our patients who may or may not be premedicated for that particular purpose that we specifically reached out or, you know, they had you know, a, a really terrible abscess and we prescribed the antibiotic and nah, not going to do it. So I, I think that really, really becomes important. The, the follow-on question I would ask is, is there any thought from any of us on the panel, what percentage of those prescriptions are really inappropriate? There's actually some CDC data out there on that, um, just based on chart reviews and whatnot. And they said, you know, the last numbers that I got for inappropriate use were back five or six years ago from the CDC, but they said at least 30% of antibiotics in the outpatient setting are inappropriate. And, you know, it's interesting. It's even worse than that. When I looked a little deeper into the data, um, it's likely about 50% of antibiotic prescriptions are inappropriate if you take into account unnecessary use and then add into that also inappropriate drug selection as well as dose or interval, all the rest of it. Um, and remember, so we're saying about 50% of these are inappropriate. About 80 to 90% of antibiotic usage in the United States is ambulatory, meaning going through a pharmacy uh, like the one that, that Heather owns. Azithromycin and amoxicillin are amongst the, the most commonly prescribed. 
And the last numbers I saw for antibiotics, I think they matched pretty much what Heather found as well, is that about, if you look at the numbers of prescriptions written in the US, it means that on average, not counting for duplication, about five of six people in the US had antibiotics in a year. And I just thought that that number was just absolutely astounding. And similar numbers are found in many countries overseas around the 10% number that you found, Heather. Um, Elsewhere, there are reports that the numbers were very similar, in fact, and different parts of the world, not even the same part. Right. And in one survey in England, uh, their general dental council looked at uh, prescription for antibiotics in patients, and they they came out with 33 to 87% of the prescriptions were inappropriate. Yes, and I saw another one from uh, from England or Scotland, I can't remember which, and they were uh, quoting, it was 81%, I believe it was Scotland, of dental antibiotic uh, prescribing wasn't needed. So I, I, I'd like to keep going into that because there are times when it is appropriate. So, so there are recommendations from the ADA, AHA, and also AALS. What are the right times, the common times that as as dentists, we should be prepared to prescribe and be prepared to prescribe appropriately. In my mind, I think, you know, as a physician, I think it has to be in collaboration. You know, dentists and physicians should be collaborating on this, on who should get it. You know, the American Heart Association guidelines have changed over the years. We all know that years ago, anybody with a little mitral valve prolapse got it. You know, now, you know, they're really focusing on structural valvular abnormalities. I think that's really the best way I can put it. You know, there, there are distinct criteria, which we've get, we're, we're giving you links to at the end of this, but structural valvular abnormalities that are likely to cause, uh, or with bacteremia, are likely to cause uh, subacute bacterial endocarditis. Um, and interestingly, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, you know, years ago, they were saying, give everybody antibiotics who had, you know, an artificial knee or hip. And now they're really saying it's probably in most cases not necessary. Now, I don't know, you know, Stanley or others, how the ADA matches with those. There's one thing I want to mention about that, because in an article published uh, in Dental Clinics of North America, Tom Palish made a, a list of how dentists use antibiotics inappropriately. And one of them was the use of antibiotics to prevent negligence claims. In other words, CYA. Mm-hmm. You know, let's give them the antibiotics just to make sure if anything happens, it's not my fault. And that's one of the many things. I think that's a very common one right there. There's a whole list of other things, but uh, uh, using in endodontics, using it as an analgesic, get rid of the infection, get rid of the pain. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, there are a lot of things. Uh, the, the two cases I gave you were the oral surgery. One case was uh, impacted third molars, no infection. And yet they prophylactically gave that person antibiotics. Yeah, and if we, go, if we go back and look at the acute pulpitis, um, the US, it was about 28% of the time. But if you went to Spain, uh, there was one study where they looked at different countries, and it was 71% of the dentists in Spain at that time. So that does vary across different regions and different countries in terms of what the, it's, it's almost what either how you were trained or your habits or what, how it's all developed over time. I have to say, though, in, in defense of dentists, it, it sounds as if we're uh, making it out to be bad, um, but there's pressure from patients as well. And there's a recent article from the UK that pretty much summed it up. 
And the title of the article is, I've got toothache, I need antibiotics. So there is pressure from patients because they're in pain, because they're going on vacation. And so they're given antibiotics uh, just in case. If, if they're delayed prescriptions, that's one thing. Uh, but sometimes they would fill them immediately. Um, and there were many other causes as well, aside from the guidelines that were different to the revised ones more recently that are much more conservative. You know, I've got to admit that I, in my life, have taken antibiotics when I probably had a viral infection. It's that easy to do. I mean, you just want antibiotics to cure everything. There's a point here for Heather. So, Heather, do you know that over the weekends, when dentists may or may not be available, that there is an increased level of prescribing, and it might also include antibiotics and maybe even opiates in in pharmacies in general. Your thoughts there? I definitely think that there is. I see a lot of visits to different urgent care facilities, emergency rooms. You know, people get that swelling, they're in pain, um, their dentist is unavailable. I think being located in a rural area, it's difficult to get in to see your dentist, especially when an urgent issue crops up. So the kind of Band-Aid fix is an antibiotic, an NSAID, and sometimes an opioid just to relieve the pain. Unfortunately, in a rural area, it can take sometimes weeks or months to get in to see your dentist. So that patient then follows up maybe Monday morning with their dentist who doesn't have time on their schedule to see them right away figuring, well, they're already on the antibiotic, let me just continue it and I'll I'll get them in maybe next week because it's urgent. So then we've exposed them even longer to it. And that also falls under an inappropriate antibiotic. But something I'd like to quickly mention, and I think we're all all guilty of this, not just dentists, I have an emphasis on um, compliance and adherence. And I think that most patients fail to finish their course of antibiotics. The pain goes away, the swelling goes down, they feel better, they stop the antibiotics, or maybe a family member stop, you know, has antibiotics and stop them. They don't go to the emergency room, they find this bottle in their medicine cabinet, kitchen cabinet, wherever they store things and think, oh, well, it worked for that, I'm going to start myself on this. I see a tremendous amount of antibiotic misuse and abuse by patients themselves. That's a great point. But, but there's one point we've all discussed on the panel. COVID, we're not ignoring COVID-19. We just spent the last year and a half, almost two years, with COVID-19 our primary focus. And the reality is, in dentistry, when we look at the statistics, we've done a pretty good job of addressing this and addressing this safely. But I, I think it's really important that we realize that these superbugs are here and they're only becoming more and more serious problem for us. So just throwing that out there. And and then as as my question and and the panel's question to all, and then please, I'm gonna open it to Q&A is, so what's next? I think we all need to think about that, but please reach out with your questions, hit hit the magic buttons on our Zoom. And um, we really want to hear from you. And our panel is all available. If you'll notice on on our slides, we have everybody's name, picture, and of course their email address as well. And there is the slide with all of the resources. 
But please don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. We're there to help. And this is a really ongoing, serious topic for all of us. And we all want to do the right thing. Thank you all.